Good morning, guys. Boy, I love the, the, love the songs. I mean, it just prepares our hearts. And, and the, the writers of these songs just bring out so much. I like that one verse, uh, God's love exceeds the, riches, the reaches of heaven. I mean, it's just so nice to know that we serve a loving God, a God that's mighty to save, right? And as we get ready for Easter, it's not too early to get into the rhythm. Christ is risen. Amen. He's risen indeed. He's risen indeed. <laughs> so uh, it's exciting as we get ready for the Easter season as well. So uh, continuing our, our series on God is love, you know, last week, we, or last month, I mean, we spoke on uh, uh, God's love and compassion he had for the pagan world of uh, the Ninevites in the Assyrian Empire. And it just shows you that we can't out God in his, his compassion and his loving kindness. And, uh, and, and God showed mercy on him. But uh, sometimes God has to judge. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And it comes from the book of Nahum. And uh, you should all turn to Nahum. Keep your finger there because we'll refer to many verses in Nahum. We'll go back and forth. A lot of the rest of the verses are in the handout, so you won't have to navigate too much, but it'll be good for you to, to see these words as I read them in Nahum. And just looking at, and if you have a, a MacArthur Study Bible, it's on page 1281 on my MacArthur Study Bible. I have an ESV version. Uh, it's one of the minor prophets there, the 12 pro- minor prophets in the back of the Old Testament. Uh, Nahum, it's the only thing we know about Nahum is what is in this chapter. And the first verse tells you why we're in Nahum. Uh, Nahum 1, verse 1, an oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. And that's all we know about Nahum. He's not referenced anywhere else in the Bible. And really, something really exciting happened this, this week. It was announced uh, in the Middle East that some more Dead Sea Scrolls were found. Not actually scrolls, they were pieces. And in a, in a cave called, uh, I forget what it was, uh, the, cave, the Horrific Cave or something like that, because there's so many dead skeletons in this particular cave. And uh, they found some scraps of Nahum, verses 5 and 6 of chapter 1. And that's all they found was scraps. A lot of these Dead Sea Scrolls, since they were first discovered, have been looted. So it's been hard to stay ahead of the looters. And, and so... Uh, they're just finding bits of pottery, and of course nobody wants the bones, so you, the skeletons are still there. And, uh, but they found like over, I think, 600 scraps of little pieces of parchment. And in Nahum, they, parts of verses 5 and 6 were found. So I thought that was pretty interesting as we're studying Nahum. So, um, you know, last week it was the goodness, or last month it was the goodness of God, and this time it's the severity of God, or the severity of God. More than 100 years have passed since the time of Jonah until Nahum prophesied the final doom of Nineveh. Nahum, like Jonah before him, was called specifically to prophesy against this one city. This brief, brief book, as I mentioned, bears his name and it's his only known prophecy. This time God's purpose was vengeance, though, not mercy. Jonah's message had brought a loving warning to the city. Nahum's message would pronounce would be a pronouncement of doom. God was about to glorify himself again, but now he would do it by displaying his wrath against Nineveh. Shortly after Jonah's experience in Nineveh, the Assyrians, led by, and I'm not sure I'm going to pronounce this right, Sennacherib, whose palace was in Nineveh, stepped up their barbarous treatment of the Israelites. Assyrian rulers of this era were ruthless men who boasted of their own brutalities. They liked to torture their victims with slow, cruel means of death, and they were known for building monuments to their conquest of mutilated human remains. Senecrab was the worst of the lot. Assyria was responsible for dragging the ten northern tribes of Israel off into captivity, which they never returned from. The Assyrians were under Sennacherib, also came in military force against the southern kingdom, 
during Hezekiah's reign in Israel. Through Nahum, God was in effect saying he would no longer tolerate the sins of such a nation or the persecution of his people. God, in effect, is saying he would no longer tolerate the sins of such a nation or the persecution of his people. You know, we don't know when God's going to judge, but he will judge in his time. And since Nineveh was the capital, capital of Assyria, it was against the Ninevites that God pronounced his judgment. Under Jonah's ministry, and despite Jonah's unsympathetic attitude, God did display his love and compassion for the citizens of Nineveh. But that only lasted one generation. A hundred years later, now he would pour out his wrath. Either way, God receives the glory. Nahum's prophecy gives us lucid insight into the character of God. Lest we behold his mercy and forget his severity, here is a reminder that ultimately a holy God must wreck vengeance against sin. God is a righteous judge. For him to fail to carry out judgment would be inconsistent with his glory, untrue to his word, and a contradiction of who he is. In other words, the basis for his judgment is his own righteous character. His judgment is as essential to his glory as his love. So in the most candid, vivid terms, Nahum sets forth this majestic character of God as judge. Nathan's, Nathan's prophecy is also noteworthy for its careful balance, and we'll see that as we go on. The prophet outlines four aspects of God's judgment that show the perfect equilibrium of the divine attributes. He's a God of inflexible power, uh, inflexible justice, irresistible power, infinite mercy, and inconceivable righteousness. He is a God of inflexible justice. Justice is a legal term that describes the righteousness of a divine government. God is a just God. His justice is, un, is as unchanging as any other aspect of his character. God cannot change his mind or laurel, lower his moral standards. Since he is utterly perfect, any change at all would diminish his perfection, and that would be unthinkable. So his justice is inflexible. His holy nature demands that it be so. As creator, he is, he is entitled to rule over all his creatures any way he pleases. The potter quite simply has, has power over the clay to fashion it any way he desires. He makes the laws, he determines the standards, and he judges accordingly. He created everything for his own pleasure, and he has every right to do so. He also has total power to determine the principles by which creation must function. In short, he has absolute right to do whatever he determines to do. And because he is righteous, he rules in perfect righteousness, always holding to the highest standard of truth and perfect virtue. And it's nice to know this is the kind of God we serve. If any creature, though, chafes under God's rule or rebels against divine government, that creature then falls immediately under the judgment of God. Anyone who does not conform to the will of God incurs the inflexible justice of God. In other words, God's justice is perfect because he himself is absolutely pure, utterly righteous, consummately just. He himself is perfect. He cannot be unjust. That is precisely why his justice is inflexible. So looking at Nahum, chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Here is the description of God which Nahum introduces in his prophecy. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. 
Those are powerful statements, giving an unmistakable look into God's character. Notice it says God is jealous. Some people picture jealousy as an unwholesome trait, but this speaks of a righteous jealousy unique to God. He is intolerant of unbelief, rebellion, disloyalty, or infidelity. He resents the insults and the indignities of people who worship anything or anyone besides him. He demands to be given his rightful place above all else that we love or worship. Thus, someone might say, God is self-centered. But of course, God alone has the right to be self-centered. In contrast to all his creatures, he is entitled to demand worship and be jealous of his own glory. He is God and there is no one else like him, Isaiah 46, 9 tells us. And he, and he alone has absolute authority to judge those who rebel against his laws, refuse to give him glory, ridicule his authority, or doubt his word. And he is jealously guards his name against all who would diminish his glory. Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Isaiah 48, 11, for my own sake, for my own sake I do it, for how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. What would seem like unacceptable pride in a lesser being is the necessary expression of a holy God who refuses to have his holiness besmirched. God's jealousy is therefore a righteous jealousy. This truth is taught in the first of the Ten Commandments. In Exodus 20, 2 through 3, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. The second commandment forbids idolatry and explicitly describes God as jealous. You shall, make, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me. The third commandment continues the same theme, warning those who would trifle with the name of God. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. You know, we kind of memorize the first half of the Ten Commandments, but it's that second half. And for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. These are really stern, sobering warnings. And, you know, I weeped as I was preparing this message for my lost relatives and friends, not understanding how offensive they are to God and that they will pay that price if they don't come to yield to Christ and how it's important for us to be that light and salt for our friends and relatives and warn them. In Ezekiel 39, 25, he echoes, I will be jealous for my holy name. God's holy jealousy is so descriptive of who he is that he even takes the name jealous as his own. In Exodus 34, 14, you shall worship no other God for the Lord whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. And in Deuteronomy 4.24 we read, The Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. The message, I think, is clear. God is jealous for his glory. And to disgrace his honor in any way by worshiping a false God or disobeying the true God or simply failing to love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength is to incite the jealousy of God or incur his holy wrath. Simply because of who he is, God is perfectly righteous to be jealous of his glory and to be angry at those who denigrate him or defame him in any way. Ezekiel 38:18 is a graphic portrayal of God's righteous jealousy. The King James Version puts it this way, 
It shall come to pass at the same time when Gog shall come against the land of Israel, said the Lord God, that my fury shall come up in my face. Scripture pictures God so angry that his wrath wells up in his face, like someone who becomes red-faced with fury. In Ezekiel's prophecy continues, it's there in your handout, Ezekiel 38, 19 through 23. For in my jealousy and in my blazing wrath, I declare on that day there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. The fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the field and all creeping things that creep on the ground and all the people who are on the face of the earth shall quake at my presence. And the mountains shall be thrown down and the cliffs shall fall and every wall tumble to the ground. I will summon a sword against Gog and all my mountains, declares the Lord. Every man's sword will be against his brother. With pestilence and bloodshed, I will enter into judgment with him. And I will rain upon him and his hordes and many people who are with him torrential rains and hailstones, fire and sulfur. So I will show my greatness and my holiness and make myself known in the eyes of many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Wow, when that happens, the world's going to know. God tolerates no rivals. He permits no rebels. He is a jealous God. And when the Lord Jesus Christ returns in glory, the wrath of God will be on display. Jude 14, 15 tells us, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment and all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds, of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and for all harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So why all this attention on God's jealousy when we're talking about God's love? Quite simply because jealousy is an expression of his love. Jealousy is possible only in a love relationship. God is jealous because he loves. He is jealous when those who are the object of his loving kindness are drawn away by sin and evil to worship other gods. He is jealous when those who ought to love him defy him and set their love on lesser objects. But the supreme jealousy of God is against those who spurn his beloved son. 1 Corinthians 16.22 tells us, If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Those who refuse to love to the Lord Jesus Christ abide under God's curse because he is jealous for his own son. Thus, God's love, particularly the Father's love for the Son, is inextricably linked to his holy jealousy. His love would actually be diminished if he relinquished his jealous anger. Look again at Nahum's prophecy against Nineveh. Here we see that God's wrath, tempered by his great patience and loving kindness for so many years, must inevitably give way to his avenging anger against sin. Notice the emphasis in verse 2, placed on divine vengeance in just the second verse. The Lord is jealous in an avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes the vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The repetition of this solemn concept gives prophecy a tone that is both fearful and severe and fittingly so. Up here, Ken. You can get, get a hand out of here. These are no idle threats. God is about to avenge his name against a wicked city that was once the recipient of his patience and compassion. Now Nineveh will find no mercy. The concept of vengeance, like that of jealousy, often carries less than noble connotations. Jesus forbade us to have a vengeful spirit in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 38 through 44. But again, God, precisely because he is God, has every right to unleash his vengeance against the wicked. In fact, he is righteous to do so. In Deuteronomy 32, 35, he says, vengeance is mine and recompense or retribution. 
He has the exclusive right to judge evildoers, execute vengeance, and pour out his wrath against sin. Those are prerogatives of God and God alone. In fact, the very reason we are not to seek our own vengeance is that judgment and condemnation are divine rights. And obviously, we're not divine. Paul wrote to the Romans, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord, Romans 12, 19. No one violates the glory and the honor of God. No one slights his son. No one attacks those he loves, then escapes his wrath. And that, that's what makes me weep for my loved ones and lost friends. Nahum 1.3 simply says, The Lord will by no means clear the guilty. The Lord revengeth and is furious, is the way the King James Version puts it. Furious is translated from two Hebrew words that literally means the Lord is master of his anger. It speaks of a controlled fury. Again, not a transient emotion, not a passion, but a fixed disposition, just like his love. God is angry with the wicked every day, as Psalm 711 tells us. His wrath is constant, unwavering, but it is a burning fury against all those who rebel against him. God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men, Romans 1.18 reminds us. His justice is inflexible, unbending, and always consistent. He will reckon with all who rebel. He will take vengeance on all his adversaries. Again, Nahum 1.2, he keeps wrath for his enemies because he is just for him to do so. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Sinners often presume on the mercy and goodness of God. He is slow to anger, patient, long-suffering, kind and gracious, verse 3 tells us. But no sinner should ever take the goodness of God for granted. No one should mistake his patience for weakness. No one should assume his kindness signifies permission to continue in sin and unbelief. No one should think his love is an antidote to his wrath. His goodness is not given as comfort for sinners, but for precisely the opposite reason. Let me state that again. His goodness is not given as a comfort for sinners, but for precisely the opposite reasons. And it's Romans 2.4 that tells us that. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God is good to us because he wants us to repent, because he loves us. He doesn't want anybody. He doesn't want to put his wrath on everybody. He wants us all to come to repentance because he loves us so much. Yet many do misinterpret God's goodness as apathy towards sin and a barrier to judgment. 2 Peter 3.4 depicts this error, taking it to its extreme by mockers, who in the last days, and remember now, we are in the last days, will scoff at the threat of God's retribution. Where is the promise of his coming? Forever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. No one should miss the real point of God's long-suffering. Though loving, he has no plan to overlook the transgressions of the wicked. The Lord knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And we need to remember that because vengeance is his, 2 Peter 2.9. He is not slack concerning his promises, just long-suffering, 2 Peter 3.9. Likewise, when Nahum writes, the Lord is slow to anger, in verse 3, he is warning his readers that they must not confuse God's patience with impotence. Look again at Nahum's words in verse 3. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. Those who believe they are safe from judgment because God has not yet poured out his wrath had better think again. His goodness is not weakness, and his forbearance is not indifference. 
Vengeance is mine and recompense, says the Lord, for the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and their doom comes swiftly. Deuteronomy 32, 35. Again, the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Nahum's statement that God is great in power introduces the second of the three aspects of divine judgment that he highlights. He is a God of irresistible power. Nahum's entire prophecy is a verbal display of the divine majesty and a song of praise and triumph of God's power. Continuing in verse 3, His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. Anyone familiar with the power of a cyclone understands the gist of this. Nahum is describing describing the majestic power of God's fury, and he uses three aspects of nature to make the point. God's power in the heavens, God's power over the waters, and God's power on the land. In Psalm 19.1, David wrote, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And I, I, re- I recite that to myself every night when I take my puppies out walking and I look up to the sky and I see the moon and the stars and the different positions every night how how the cycle continues from new moon to full moon I mean it's just glorious and it it just speaks of the power and magnitude and it's just unfathomable the glory Nahum sees in the heavens is God's avenging power God controls the whirlwinds the storms and the clouds and I did as a kid get to witness a tornado And it's scary. Those natural wonders are not only displays of divine power, but also are frequently employed as instruments of his judgment. Clouds, for example, are often noted in the scripture as symbols of divine judgment. When Christ returns in judgment, he comes with the clouds and in the midst of great judgment, according to Mark 13, 26 and Revelation 1, 7. In Nahum's prophecy, not only the heavens, but also the water represents God's vengeance. He rebukes the sea in verse 4. When of course, that, of course, reminds us of the dramatic account in Mark 4, 39, when Jesus rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Remember the disciples' reactions? They became very afraid and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Verse 41 in in Mark 4. They saw the awesome power of God in Christ, and they trembled before that power. And we all will when we see that power. They knew it was the power of a holy, omnipotent, avenging judge. Perhaps their mind even went back to this verse in Nahum, and they remembered the prophecy of divine vengeance. When Nahum wrote in verse 4, he rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers, Bashan and Carmel, wither and the bloom of Lebanon withers. He was foretelling the doom of Israel's enemies. Bashan, Carmel, and Lebanon were the boundaries of Israel. Of course, this prophecy had a particular reference to Nineveh, a city well beyond Israel's borders, but home to an army that was threatening those very borders. Nahum next spoke of God's power over the land. Verse 5, the mountains quake before him, the hills melt, the earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Someday, according to Revelation 6, 12, 11, 13, 16, 18 through 20, God will shake the earth with an earthquake from which the world we know will never recover. Haggai 2, 6 through 7 contains this prophecy. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land and I will shake all nations. God controls the earth. He, can't, he can shake it whenever he likes. The mountains quakes in his presence, Isaiah 64, 3. The hills melt like hot wax before him, Psalm 97, 5. When he determines to shake the earth, he shakes it, Judges 5, 5, Ezekiel 38, 20. 
His power is irresistible. God's justice is absolutely inflexible. His power is absolutely irresistible. Our God is a consuming power. I think I've got the, this part in Hebrews in your handout. Hebrews 12, 25 through 29. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns us from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yes, once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Amen? Amen. For our God is a consuming fire. He is a God of infinite mercy. But in verse 7, Nahum introduces this brief interlude, a one-verse interlude, into his prophecy of the doom against his enemies of Jehovah. He reminds the people of Israel, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. That's why we sing, He is a good, good God today. The Hebrew word translated, take refuge in, conveys the idea of trusting, confiding in, and fleeing for that protection. It speaks of faith. Those who take refuge in the Lord and those who believe in, are those who believe in him and trust him. In fact, the King James Version translates the verse like this, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knoweth them that trust in him. The Lord, the judge himself, is a stronghold for those who seek refuge in him by faith. Those words, in a nutshell, contain the entire gospel of the justification by faith. The same God who threatens judgment against the wicked, loving, against the wicked lovingly, compassionately invites sinful souls in despair to find their refuge in him. He alone will bear their haven, their stronghold. He alone will be their haven, their stronghold, their protection from divine judgment. How does he shelter those who trust him? He covers them with his own righteousness, which is theirs by faith. Philippians 3.9 tells us. That's why in the Old Testament, he will be called the Lord of our righteousness. Jeremiah 23.6. The Old Testament repeatedly reveals God as a shelter for believing Israel. Psalm 61 calls him a refuge and a tower of strength, covering his people as a bird covers chicks with its wings, in verses 3 and 4 of Psalm 61. Psalm 140, verse 7, the psalmist refers to the Lord as the strength of my salvation, who has covered my head in the day of battle. 2 Samuel 22, 22.2 he is the rock, the fortress, and the deliverer. All that imagery has important implications for the doctrine of justification by faith. The theme in the Old Testament reaches its apex in Isaiah 53:11, where the prophet reveals that the Messiah, the righteous one, my servant, may make to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. The fullness of the doctrine of justification is finally expounded on in the New Testament where the Apostle Paul illuminates it most thoroughly in his epistles. There we learn that the very righteousness of God in Christ is imputed to believers solely by faith and not owing to any works performed by the believing one, Romans 4, 4 through 6. Christ himself has already fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law, on behalf of believers, and died in their place to pay the sin's dreadful price. He paid the price for us. All believers in Christ are therefore both freed from their guilt and vested with Christ's perfect righteousness. That is the only way guilty sinners can find peace with God. Romans 5.1 The doctrine of justification by faith is the very heart and soul of genuine Christianity. 
No brand of faith that denies it deserves to be labeled Christianity. The textbook definition by justification by faith is this. Justification is a judicial act of God in which he declares on the basis of the righteousness of Jesus Christ that all that all that claims of the law are satisfied with respect to the sinner. Let me repeat that. Justification is a judicial act of God in which he declares on the basis of the righteousness of Jesus Christ that all the claims of the law are satisfied with respect to the sinner. In other words, God declares the believing sinner's righteousness because of Christ, not because of any actual righteousness on the part of the sinner himself. He saved us yet while we were still sinners. Some might suggest that Nahum 1.3 altogether rules out that sort of justification. The Lord will by no means clear the guilty. King James even puts it even stronger. The Lord will not at all acquit the wicked. A parallel passage makes the same point with God himself stating, I will not acquit the guilty, Exodus 23.7. If God will not justify sinners, we all seem to be in a hopeless state. But this is precisely where the glorious light of the New Testament revelation shines most brightly, revealing the true depth of God's love. He does not merely acquit sinners. He does not overlook their sin. In the person of Jesus Christ, he made a once and for all infinite atonement for their sins. Now he covers them with his own perfect righteousness by imputing it to them through faith, imputing it to us through our faith, Romans 4.11. All genuine believers, therefore, stand completely justified before a righteous God. It is not a future hope, but a present-day reality. It's not a drawn-out process, but an immediate divine act that occurs at the first moment of faith. God's holy wrath is appeased and his love is perfectly fulfilled in salvation wrought by Christ. Thus, he himself is truly the stronghold to which sinners may flee from his awful judgments. And we see that the love of God and his wrath are inextricably linked. It is impossible to study one without encountering the other. That is why Nahum places this accolade to the goodness and the mercy of God in the midst of the passage about God's wrath. This verse is not a digression from the theme. It is at the heart of the message. This is a juxtaposition of the wrath and the goodness of God. It's frankly hard, though, for many people to swallow. Liberal theologians flatly denies that a God of wrath can also be loving. Those who hold that liberal view inevitably define God according to their own specifications. They imagine God as benign but impotent, unable to force his righteous standards or to stop evil from happening. In other words, they deny that God is truly sovereign. Others deny God's essential goodness. They see the effect of evil in the world. Poverty, disease, human wretchedness, natural disasters, and other disorders. And they conclude that God is cruel or unloving or deny that he even exists. They cannot envision that a sovereign being who is truly good would tolerate so much evil. But Nahum knew God was both sovereign and good. There was no contradiction. The Lord is good. Forty-one times in the Old Testament, we are told that his mercy endures forever. Seven times we find the phrase, the Lord is good. He alone is good, Matthew 19, 17. His goodness is personified in Christ, the good shepherd, John 10, 11, and 14. His universal goodness is revealed in all his works. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. Psalm 145, 9. Psalm 33, 5. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. All creation speaks of God's essential goodness. Consider this simple truth. The Lord could have made everything brown. Brown grass, brown flowers, brown sky, brown sea. But he didn't. 
There is so much for us to enjoy in the variety and the beauty of his creation. These things illustrate his essential goodness. God is good, a good, good God. His goodness is seen in all his works. Don't let that profoundness of that truth escape you, that he is a good, good God. No one appreciates the goodness of God like those who seek their refuge in him. They are the ones who know him and love him. They are the ones of whom he has set his eternal love. They have fled to him as their stronghold and found mercy. They experience his goodness like no others. They appreciate his love like no one else. And the world does not understand this. Verse 7, and he knows those who take refuge in him. Does that mean that only people he knows about are the ones who trust him? Certainly not. Remember the word know and its derivatives are often used in scripture as synonyms for love. Cain knew his wife. The expression speaks of the most intimate kind of love, and in this case, sexual union between a man and his wife. When scripture says God knows those who take refuge in him, he means he loves them with the deepest, most tender, and most personal affection. It describes the intimacy of divine love, which is unparalleled by any earthly kind of love. When Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them in John 10, 27, he didn't mean he knows who they are. He meant that he has an intimate relationship with them. Similarly, when Jesus said, I never knew you, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, in Matthew 7, 23, he did not mean that he didn't know who those people were. He meant that he had never had an intimacy of a love relationship with them. God intimately loves those who trust in him. That knowledge of that love is the greatest of all delights that can be experienced by the human heart. In Micah 7, 18 through 19, that's is in your hand out there, we read, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. That describes the infinite mercy of God displayed in the salvation of his people. If you have ever personally known that love, if you have never personally known that love, be your heart stirred to wonder about it, I urge you to turn to Christ in faith and seek that refuge in him so you can learn this kind of love as well. He is a God of inconceivable righteousness. It's tempting to camp on Nahum 1.7 and focus on the goodness of God. We must note that this is only that one verse interlude that extols in the utter righteousness of God judging the wicked. The book of Nahum is a prophecy, as we said, is a doom of a wicked city. Though the Ninevites of Jonah's day found in God the refuge from judgment, their descendants would bear the full brunt of God's wrath. Nahum 1.7 is a clear testimony that God is still good for those who seek refuge in him, but the Ninevites of Nahum's day would ultimately provide an object lesson of a different sort. Verse 9, what do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. God's judgment does not negate his essential goodness, nor does his goodness alter the severity of judgment. God is long-suffering, but when he finally must act in judgment, he makes a complete end of it. Hardened sinners should take note and tremble because we don't know when that time is. Nahum's message in verses 10 through 14 foretells the defeat of the Assyrians. God's righteous contempt for the evil workers is evident in his pronouncement against them. Nahum chapter 1 verse 10 and this is uh, if you I forget if it's in the handout but if you're at your Bible there verse 10 for they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble, fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless 
counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break this yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. Like a field of tangled thorns, they were fit for burning. Like drunkards, they were defenseless. And like dry stubble, they were powerless to withstand the consuming flames of divine wrath. The phrase, one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless concert, seems to refer to the leader of the Assyrians, Sennacherib, in verse 11. Against the entire nation and all the idolatrous gods, the Lord prophesies total destruction. The prophecy was fulfilled to the letter. We read in 2 Kings 19, 35 through 37, that one night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, departed and went home to live in Nineveh. And he, saw wor- he, and he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, Adamelech and Sherezer, his son, struck him down with a sword and escaped into the land of Ararat. And Esarhaddon, his son, reigned in his place. That that was only the beginning of the judgment of the Assyrians, and Nineveh in particular. Beginning in chapter 2, Nahum prophesies the destruction of Nineveh. We don't have the time to go through all the details, but note it was fulfilled exactly as it's recorded. After a series of enemy attacks and natural disasters, Nineveh was overwhelmed by the armies of the Medes, and the city was utterly leveled. When Nineveh fell, the Assyrian Empire toppled along with it. Twice in Nahum's prophecy, the Lord tells Nineveh, I am against you, in 2.13 and 3.5. And Charles Feinberg, Dr. Charles Feinberg, wrote, Paul indicates in Romans 8.31 that if God be for us, no one can successfully be against us. The reverse is also true. If God is against an individual or a nation by virtue of sin, then no one can successfully, successfully be for that person or nation. When Assyria touched Israel, God said, Behold, I am against thee. This is an inevitable if God is to be true to his promise to Abraham. He had solemnly promised that in such just instances he would curse those who had cursed the seed of Abraham. The truth of God's dictum is written in the fate of Nineveh. Or to say it another way, if God is for you, does it matter who is against you? Or if God is against you, does it matter who is for you? And so we see again that God's wrath is proof of his love. His judgment is linked to his faithfulness, and he is righteous when he judges. Nineveh was finished as a city. To this day, the site still lies in ruins, giving mute testimony to the severity of God's wrath against sin. But it's also a reminder of God's immeasurable power, immeasurable love for his own people. The destruction of Nineveh freed Israel from centuries of grief at the hands of the marauding Assyrians. It was God's message to a wayward nation, Israel, that he still loved them. God had chastened Israel severely for their sins. For this purpose, for his purpose in afflicting Israel was only corrective. Through Nahum, he assured them, the Assyrians will be cut off and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, Israel, I will afflict you no more, in verse 12. There is a vast and important difference between God's judgment and his discipline. We need to make sure we we cover this. Judgment is severe, final, destructive. Discipline is loving, tender, and corrective. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives, 
Hebrews 12, 6. We're still in our fleshly bodies. We still got to be reminded and sometimes chastised. His discipline has a loving purpose. His discipline disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the, more, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Hebrews 12, 10 through 11. His judgment against the wicked, however, is of a different character altogether. The, to the wanton unbeliever, our God is a consuming fire, as we read in Hebrews 12, 29. Calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing, Proverbs six fifteen. No one should be lulled into carelessness by the knowledge that God is loving and gracious. God's love is immeasurable, unfathomable, and inexhaustible. It is perfectly correct to say that God's love is infinite. But that does not mean his love negates his righteousness or overrules his holy wrath. The Lord is good for his steadfast love endures forever. Jeremiah 33, 11. The countless redeemed throughout eternity will give testimony to that. Psalm 94, 14, 15. For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. For justice will return to the righteous, and all the upright in heart will follow it. Those who are not upright in heart, those who spurn God's love and follow their own ways, will ultimately suffer the same fate as Nineveh. That city where the love of God was once poured out in so great abundance finally perished in the fury of his wrath. In Romans 11, 22, Behold, therefore, the goodness and the severity of God. On them which fell severity, but toward thee goodness, if thou continue in his goodness, otherwise thou also shall be cut off. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Thank you for this sobering lesson from Jonah and Nahum that you do love those who love you and that you guard your righteousness with jealousy and wrath and that you leave us here on this earth after we come to faith in you to be the light and the salt to the world, to warn the rest who have not put their faith and trust in you that they still have time, as long as they still have breath, they still have time. And as Charles Spurgeon said, let's not any of them go to hell without us wrapped around their ankles, begging them to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and not go to the wrath of hell. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.